Chapter Twenty Five of Fresh Every Hour by John Peter Tuey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. They're always pickin' on me," moaned Jimmy a few weeks later, as he flung the letter he had just finished reading down on his desk in a corner of the dingy office of the Colonial Theatre, and kicked impulsively at a crumpled pile of discarded newspapers on the floor. "What's the matter, old man?" inquired Matthews, looking up from a stack of letters on his desk, and regarding the press agent with a bantering smile. "'Is Bartlett out on the rampage again?' "'No,' replied Jimmy, in a disgusted tone of voice. "'I wish he was. He's postin' three sheets tellin' what a grand little fellow I am. That's what gets my pet angora.' "'What's the catch?' questioned the other. "'Oh, that's concealed in the last paragraph.' He starts out with a lot of hot air about how good I am and how pleased he is at the wonderful showing I've landed over here in Boston, and a bunch of other junk, and then he... Wait, I'll read you the finish. He says, And being desirous of showing my appreciation of your efforts in a concrete way, I have decided to entrust to you the general direction of the publicity campaign of The Ganges Princess. I will send someone to take over Keep Moving on Saturday, and you will kindly report at this office on Monday morning." Matthews, who had sauntered over to Jimmy's desk during the reading of Chester Bartlett's letter, looked frankly bewildered. "'I'm pretty dense, I guess,' he said. "'I don't see anything in that to cause you to exhibit any signs of distress. He's handing you the prize job of the season on a gold platter. You couldn't stop the papers from printing stuff about that show with an injunction from the Supreme Court. Don't you realize that?" "'Oh, that's part of it, all right,' replied Jimmy. "'I suppose I've got a nerve to put up a holler, but I can't help it. It's this thing of being bounced about like a tennis ball that makes me sore. The minute I get sewed up with one show, and the machinery in the little old idea factory gets all oiled up, and is making two eighty-six revolutions to the minute, Along comes a letter or a wire shootin' me on to join something else. Gee, I wish I was workin' for myself and not for the other guy." Jimmy would have resented any suggestion that the look which crept into his eyes as he said this was wistful, but it was just that. He paused and gazed out of the window at the scurrying throng of early morning shoppers. Across his face there came and went the shadow of a pathetic smile a smile that seemed to express for a moment the elation of holding within his grasp the very substance of things hoped for, and which instantly merged into something that epitomized utter hopelessness. Matthews sensed his mood, and put his hand on the press agent's shoulder. "'Why don't you take a flyer on your own?' he asked. "'Everybody in the business would wish you well.' Jimmy snorted derisively. "'What would I use for money?' he inquired sarcastically. Playwrights ain't taken good wishes for advance royalties, and you can't slip a few kind words into the salary envelopes on Saturday night. But it don't take so much to make a start, persisted the other. Don't you manage to save anything at all? Sure. I've got almost enough cigarette coupons to get a gold-plated safety razor, or a genuine silk umbrella, and there's twenty shares of flying frog copper stock in the tray of my trunk. That must be worth all of a dollar and eight cents, and it cost me about thirty dollars, too. 
Quit your kiddin', old man. An agent has about as much chance these days of savin' money as the Kaiser has of bein' invited to a weekend party by the King of England. Jimmy stood up and began to pace slowly up and down the room. The wistful look came into his eyes again, and the longing smile touched his mouth once more. "'Still,' he said, half to himself, "'it's kind of nice to think about ownin' your own show, even if you know you never will, and to sort of get a flash in your mind's eye of a twenty-four sheet with James T. Martin Presents, splashed across the top of it in black on yellow with red initials. James T. Martin Presents. That'd certainly look immense on that low board on Broadway near 45th Street that hits everybody on the big street right in the eye. Matthews, in response to a summons from the box office, left him still soliloquizing under his breath, and gazing pensively across the snow-covered common. The Ganges Princess was the dramatic sensation of a decade. It had been running for a solid year at the huge Hendrick Hudson Theatre in New York, having weathered a hot summer with hardly a noticeable falling off of receipts. It was Chester Bartlett's first venture into what is technically known as the legitimate field, and he had staged it with that lavish disregard for expense, and with that keen sense of the artistic which had given him pre-eminence as a producer of light musical entertainment. Written by one of America's most flamboyant playwrights, it told a turgid story of oriental passion and treachery set against a spectacular background depicting scenes in ancient India. As sheer spectacle, it quite transcended anything hitherto attempted in the United States. It presented a series of settings which were so flaming in their color, so permeated with the mystery of the East, and so splendid in their suggestion of great size and vast distances, that each new revelation was invariably greeted with gasps of amazement from the audience. A cast bristling with distinguished names gave verisimilitude to the somewhat bombastic dialogue, and purely incidental members of the company included a troop of fifty real notch girls, six elephants, five camels, and a flock of sheep. The Ganges Princess was not merely the talk of New York, it was literally the talk of the country, and its forthcoming tour promised to be one of the most important in the history of the American theatre. It was booked for extended engagements in only a few of the larger cities, there being a comparatively limited number of places containing playhouses with stages large enough to accommodate the production, and possessing auditoriums of sufficient size to ensure financial success. Bartlett had mapped out a plan of exploitation which was quite the most comprehensive ever undertaken in the annals of press agentry. No less than half a dozen advance couriers, the pick of the country, were to devote their energies to the advertising and newspaper campaign alone while the purely business details were to be entrusted to trained experts who were to have no other duties. This would leave the purveyors of publicity free and untrammeled in their assaults upon the press, and a defenseless public. Jimmy Martin was to be Generalissimo, Commander-in-Chief and Field Marshal of the Combined Forces, and was to be entrusted with delegated powers such as had never before been given to anyone holding a similar position. Matthews had understated the case when he referred to the place as the prize job of the season. It wasn't even comparable. 
nothing like it had ever been known for opportunity and power since the modern variety of press agent came into being. Jimmy realized that himself, after Bartlett had finished outlining the scope of the proposed campaign. "'Go to it, my boy,' the manager said, at the completion of an hour's talk, "'and remember that the azure dome of heaven is the limit, and that in the bright lexicon of showmanship there are no such words as, it can't be done. Do I make myself clear?' "'Absolutely,' replied Jimmy cheerfully. I'm to sit with my feet in a mustard bath, and I'm to play my cards without regard to the feelings, digestions, general state of temperature, or politics of anyone else in the game. I'm to see all raises and tilt it one for luck whenever I think the time is right for a killin'. Have I got the right combination? Bartlett laughed heartily at the flavory idioms which flowed so freely from Jimmy's lips. Thou hast, most potent, grave and reverend, signor he replied, bowing low in exaggerated mock courtesy. "'By the way,' he continued, getting back to business again, "'there's another thing I completely forgot. I've engaged a literary chap for a special stunt, and I want you to figure out some way of getting it across so that it seems on the level. The general idea is to have this fellow deliver a series of lectures on India about three weeks ahead of the play date. It'll be a camouflaged boost for the show.' Every once in a while he'll make some casual remark about the play, which he understands is shortly to be seen in this city, etc., but there won't be enough of this stuff for anyone to consider it as being at all out of the way. This gentleman will be under your direct and special control. It will be up to you to arrange to have lectures given in every city under the auspices of some literary society or social welfare group, or under the patronage of the Daughters of the American Revolution any kind of a crowd that'll give the stunt prestige and distinction. I've written Mr. Denby to meet you at the theatre this evening. Denby, eh? It can't possibly be little old J. Herbert Denby, the highbrow kid, can it? That's the name. Know him? A grin of delight spread over Jimmy's features. Fairly well, he chuckled. He tipped me off to a grand idea over in Baltimore a year or so ago. Old George B. Bookworm, eh? If he's still doing his regular act, I've got a lot of laughs coming to me on this trip. Say, you don't know how good that bird'll be for a stunt of this kind. When it comes to the uplift stuff and the literary bunk, he's there in seven separate and distinct languages. And innocent? Say, he could make a two-year-old baby look like an old offender with a sing-sing past. They'll fall for him on sight. The guileless Mr. Denby greeted Jimmy in the lobby of the Hendrick Hudson that night, in his best professional manner, and smiled benignantly through his tortoise-shell glasses. "'You will, I think, concede, Mr. Martin,' said he, proffering a rather limp hand, "'that we give the lie direct to Mr. Kipling.' "'Eh? What's that?' mumbled the other. "'I don't get you.' Mr. Denby smiled condescendingly, and replied in a tone of voice that Jimmy felt to be a bit too irritatingly suave. Mr. Kipling, the poet, you know. He says, East is East and West is West, and never the twain shall meet. Well, we are meeting on a common ground in a common cause, and we are, may I venture to suggest, decidedly alien to each other in our thoughts and sympathies, are we not? Jimmy eyed him suspiciously before replying. 
"'Listen, old dear,' he said evenly. "'I can never quite figure whether you're kidding me or not, and I'm going to be too busy from now on to ask for diagrams. If we're going to get together, you've got to get out of the little old parachute and jump off into space. In plain English, you've got to dive down to earth and keep both feet on the pavement. Save the flossy stuff for your lectures. Are you on?' Uh, of course of course stammered mr denby i mean no offence i have an unfortunate habit of making poetic allusions i shall correct it believe me my dear mr martin i shall correct it i have much to say to you where shall we have a little a little shall i say pow-wow to talk over the the uh, dope that's the idea replied jimmy slapping the other on the back and laughing heartily that's regular language let's go back to the stage manager's office and work out a plan of attack the press agent led the way through a passage which ran behind the boxes to the stage and they presently found themselves dodging the canvas walls of a great indian temple which were being deftly swung into position by a small army of stagehands, and picking their steps cautiously through a cluttered array of papier-mâché Buddhas, canopied thrones, and other properties. Once closeted in the little office in a far corner, they began a consultation which lasted for more than an hour. It was agreed that Jimmy was to travel sufficiently far enough ahead of J. Herbert Denby to arrange for and advertise his lectures, and the press agent took pains to carefully instruct the latter as to the best methods of keeping his connection with the Ganges Princess Company, a remote and cherished secret. The subjects chosen by the lecturer were, to say the least, not calculated to arouse any suspicion. Jimmy sat entranced as J. Herbert read them off from a typewritten slip he took from his card-case. "'I shall talk first, he said, upon the Rig Veda, a primitive folk-song embodying the soul of an ancient people. I shall follow that with a discourse on Brahma, Vishnu, and Siva, the triple manifestation of the Hindu god. And for my third and final lecture, I have chosen perhaps a more popular theme, Mogul versus Maharata, a study in dynastic conflicts. Do you think that program will fill the bill? Jimmy was plainly a little bit groggy, and he found it difficult to articulate for a moment or two. "'Say, old scout,' he finally managed to remark, "'I'm almost down for the count. You talk like an encyclopedia. You'll have them all pop-eyed when you pull that stuff. The harder it is to understand, the harder they'll fall. You're there, George B. Bookworm, you're there. I can see em passin' flowers over the footlights already.' J. Herbert, appreciating the sincerity of Jimmy's enthusiastic approval, blushed a little and tried to appear at ease, but it was a difficult task. The two strolled out on the darkened stage and stood in the wings watching the unfolding of the final scene of the second act, in which the Maharaja of Rampur returned unexpectedly with his followers from a tiger-hunting expedition to find his favourite wife in the arms of the villainous Begum of Baroda. They found themselves suddenly wedged in the centre of a crowd of male supernumeraries who had come clattering down the stairs leading from the dressing-rooms, accoutred in ancient armour and ready for participation in the stirring episode which was to bring the act to a close. Most of these extra people, that being their classification in the world of the theatre, 
were the usual assortment of shiftless idlers who eke out a precarious existence by doing such odd jobs on the stage, and whose oriental aspect was purely a matter of simulation. There were, however, a number of genuine East Indians among them, random visitors from an alien clime, picked up here and there, and utilized to give an added air of verisimilitude to the ensemble scenes. One of these latter, a handsome chap under thirty, whose skin was the colour of strong coffee, diluted with rich cream, and whose features had the classic regularity of a Grecian sculptured head, brushed against Jimmy's elbow, and apologised profusely. "'I am very much sorry if I have caused myself to discommode you,' he murmured, smiling pleasantly, and revealing a row of teeth of dazzling whiteness. "'That's all right,' replied Jimmy, looking at him in surprise. "'You're a regular, I see. You don't belong to the volunteers.' "'No, Sahib. I am from the East. I am long distance from homeland of my father's, if that is what you mean.' Jimmy looked at him with new interest. He had an air about him, an indefinable air of distinction, that attracted the attention of even the aesthetic J. Herbert Denby, who edged closer and entered the conversation. "'Your English is excellent,' he remarked. "'You have, perhaps, studied in one of our universities?' "'No, Sahib, not here. In Oxford. I have been in this country but a few months. Life has been a difficult problem here, in this great democracy. But I am a fatalist, Sahib, and I do not make myself uneasiness as to the future. It is useless, for it is written already on the scrolls of time.' The next instant he swept forward onto the stage with the others, in response to a signal from the stage manager, who was peering through a small hole in the scenery. "'My word!' said the astonished Mr. Denby. "'Fancy a chap like that being content to figure as one of the mob. He has the grand manner of an Indian prince.' Jimmy looked up at him quickly. "'It's moved and seconded that we make him one,' he said. "'What's that?' All in favor of the motion signify their assent by saying I, I. Contrary, no. The eyes have it, and the motion is carried. What'll we call him? I must confess that I don't grasp the significance of what you mean, said the puzzled Mr. Denby. You will, returned Jimmy, as he led the way out to the front of the house again. I'm going to give you a little playmate on this trip if I can get Bartlett to go along. Local color stuff. You've slipped me another grand little idea, old man. It's a bear. End of chapter 25